0: All right, everyone, welcome to Book Smart Lesson 5. Um, this week, we'll, we will be discussing the Musar movement and Chakira, which Chakira is, philo- they're actually both philosophy. The difference between the two philosophies are Musar is a philosophy of the heart, Chakira is mostly a philosophy of philosophy of the mind. What do I mean by that? the, the Musar movement, the Musar movement, um sorry, the Musya, yeah, the Mussar movement is gonna explain to you how to act. So just a true story that happened this week last this past week, the Parsha was Parshat Mishpatim, right? And he spoke about all the Jewish laws. So somebody asked me interesting question, and he says, what happens when you... He asked a very interesting question, this person, and he asked, he says, what happens when you find something, yet a whole thing, if you see someone drop something and they leave, do you have to return it? And we had a whole back and forth of what is the law. So Torah and the halacha sense of Torah, which we spoke about last week, speaks about all the different laws of the Torah. But then there is how are you supposed to act not regarding the law, meaning sometimes sometimes. I'll give you a very good example. Since we're speaking about you watching someone lose something. A very good example of this would be. Let us say you see someone drop money on the floor. And you don't see anything. You are standing. You're standing in a very busy area. You're standing on the. You are standing on, I don't know, where's a good spot? You're, you're in the grove. Um, you're inside the grove, that's uh, or some big shopping mall, and you decide not to do anything about it, and you're going to wait and see what happens. And then as you're waiting and you're seeing what happens, you see the guy makes a announce, he goes, he checks his pockets for his for his money, and he goes, Oi! I lost my money. I am never gonna find it now. When that happens, according to Jewish law, you are gonna always be able to keep it. Because once he gave up hope on ever finding his money, you will be allowed to keep the 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 money because he gave up hope and he he relinquishes his ownership of the money. So now, if you are a halachic Jew, great, you just made yourself a hundred bucks. But it's also not the right thing to do. Or, even though it would be okay, you wouldn't have done anything wrong. It's even a bigger mitzvah to be kind and to return the money even though you don't need to. So we're gonna get into that in the Musar, the different ideas of Musar. So we're gonna get into that today.
1: There is a proposition in total. that if somebody loses something and loses all over return again, then maybe you
0: buy Correct. I'm saying that let's say you know whose it is. It wouldn't you wouldn't need to do it, you wouldn't need to return it. But the right thing to do would be to return it. Yeah. Um, the Chakira movement, is, the Hakira is philosophy. And actually a lot of Chakira books were written in the, were, are written in the tune of Aristotle and the like. Similar, s- similar um, expressions. And they are exploring what it means, who is God, and what it means to believe in God, and stuff like that. So now, why is this needed? Why do we need this in Judaism? So the reason why we need it in Judaism, because Judaism is not a code of law. It's not only Judaism is not a code. So much more than that. It's a whole entire way of life. So therefore, the way of life there's a way to think. There's a way a Jew thinks, and there's a way a Jew a Jew acts. And which is not part of the law, you know, that there can be someone that, let us say there's someone that um, he keeps everything in Torah to the T, doesn't necessarily make him a good person. He can still be in business, he still be obnoxious, rude. so he's not living the Torah the Torah way of living, he's keeping all mitzvahs, but he's not living the Torah way of living. And that's where um, these ideas come in to rectify that, to make sure we keep up in our day-to-day lives. So now the question is, what happened? When did all these books, so we have books, Kakira books, we? if you look at this um, chart over here, you see that they start in the year, there's nothing before the year of 800. So what happened to 800? Why did the Jewish people need it before them? Um, so I'm just going to give a bit of a crash course how we have all these books and how it all started so it all begins with it all begins with um, with the Talmud everything's in the Talmud so within the Talmud you have everything that has to do with Jewish philosophy everything, everything philosophy, how to act it's all in the Talmud so now where do you find it in the Talmud so when you're learning you'll find different ideas You'll have the deepest Kabbalistic ideas living in the Talmud, but the Talmud is just a book. It is a book with different ideas spread out all over. It does not address everything specifically or on purpose. It's no book about it. But that's where it all begins. It all begins before. These are ideas that Jews lived with. They were never written down before. Now what happens is something very interesting happens. So you have two camps of jews so a lot of these books these Kakira books are written by the spartic jewish by the spartic jewish leaders the reason for that being is because you have two classes of jews which are starting to break out in the year 800 if you remember that's the year 850s about when the academy in the academy in um babylon <laughs> falls apart it was around for 850 years about in the year 850, it's uh, it's falling apart, finally. And the Jews are again dispersed. So you have the Sephardic Jews, the Ashkenazic Jews. So the difference between the Sephardic Jews and the Ashkenazic Jews is that the Sephardic Jews are part of society. The Ashkenazic Jews are not part of society. What do I mean by that? The Sephardic Jews, the Ashkenazic Jews, um, they are really not even second-class citizens in their respective countries. In Germany, France, england they are they are really sticking to their own they have their own communities and they had a much more primitive outlook to the world they were really on their own and they didn't have any outside influence as a result of that because the christians really kept them away with a six a foot stick um they weren't even allowed to live just to put in perspective they were not even, now it's, ironic that you only have this with Muslims nowadays, but they were not allowed to live in any of the major cities in their countries unless they had a specific permit. This is Russia, Russia, um, Germany. No. The Jews end up being, the Jews end up being the farmers end up being the, all these, and they, they're dealing more with these types of things because they're not allowed to live in the main cities. They're not allowed to be where the trades going on, they're not allowed to be there. So they're not even they're not participants of society that much either. The eight hundreds. Yeah, and for a very long time after. I mean, in the Ashkenazi in the Ashkenazi, um communities, this goes on. So twelve hundred years ago. Yeah, but I'm saying this goes on even to three hundred years ago. It's still going on.
1: In the twentieth century, my mother claimed can only live in oh.
0: Um, yeah, and it
1: couldn't go into mainland Russia at all, even though it was a province of Russia. Ukraine wasn't a separate country. But, um, um, that was in the 20th
0: century. On the contrary, you have the. On the contrary, you have the Jewish people, the Jews. On the other hand, they are able no. to travel no. around and about. Sorry, the Jewish people, the Spartac people. If there is certain Sparti people in our community, will be very happy that I call them. On the contrary, you have the Jewish people, the Spartac Jews. Um, so you have the Sephardic Jews. On the contrary, they are, but they still have access. They have access to um, the entirety of the part of society. So they end up being the doctors, the every single big rabbi. Most of Sephardic big rabbis end up being doctors. They're, they're doctors. They are. There's. I forget. I'm, I'm forgetting. There's certain names. There's big rabbis which were the the, the Maimonides was the head doctor for the Sultan. You have it. Uh, there's um, other rabbis which were the head doctor. They were the there's I forgot who it was a certain rabbi who was the chief of staff to the king of Spain. I think so. You have a lot of that going on. So now the that's up the pro. They were they were able to live. The Sephardic Jews lived a much easier life. They all be part of society. So that's a good thing. But the con of that is, is that as a result of that, they have a lot of outside influence. So at the time, you have um, the Arabs are very into philosophy. They're very into Aristotle. You have now, it it's funny because these things have changed. But the Arabs are very, they're into, they're into literature. So they're into Aristotle and different things. And they are giving these ideas over to the Jewish people of the time. And the Jews start getting these ideas. And they are, since there's no concrete book of Jewish philosophy, they do not know where to turn. They don't know how to respond to it. And they start thinking that Aristotle's views of God are Judaism's views. That is problem number one. Then comes a time there is Rabbi Sadia Gaon. So he actually lives. Um, he lives actually before before this era, actually. But it's, it's already starting in Babylonia, already having this issue. He is a rabbi. He comes from Egypt. He comes to Babylonia. And they make him the, the head of the academy. He becomes a teacher because he's such a great man. And at the time, there was a group that started brewing called the Karaites. They were, basically what happened was, there was a certain person who was in charge of the Jewish people at the time, and one of the sons took over the yeshiva. The other one said, came up with his own philosophy. He decided that we have to disregard the Torah, all there is is the written Torah. We have to disregard the oral Torah. There's no such thing as that, the oral Torah, because the Torah is given to every single Jew to expound upon it. And therefore, he, he makes a his own book. They, not, he, make, they, he makes his own idea that basically every single generation should expound on Torah in their own way. There's no code. He was against having any code, have the written Torah, and, has, and every single Jew should expound upon it on his own way. And it was causing a very, very big... Um, rift in the Jewish community. A lot of people were going towards there, and for years to come, this is the the Rambam in Egypt. This is one of his big struggles was with them, debating them. There's these people were you still have them today? Some of them they live they have in Israel. a Few of this movement, most of it was right, wiped out. Charoites? The Karaites, yeah.
1: Um, Am I correct? They just didn't, the main difference was they didn't accept oral war. Yes. They were like the Sadducees. Yes. Written
0: long. Um. So the Rabbi Sadia Gaon, he started. They were very philosophical Jews because when you have no code and you have to philosophize about everything, you. Um. They had a whole philosophy they are using. So Rabbi Sadia Gaon writes the first philosophy book called the Munos Videos. It means, um, means practice. It means. And unos means beliefs, and deos are how you're supposed to act. And this is the first book of Jewish philosophy that's written. Afterwards, in that era, there's a there's another a bit later. There's a book we've been learning, um, kovo talavovot the. The, you know, the truth is all the major books will be when well, the videos get speak about. So they have all these books of Jewish philosophy starting to be written. So now what is the problem with having books about Jewish philosophy? The problem is that till before there's Jewish philosophy, all there was was the mitzvah. You do the mitzvah and that's the main thing. But now when there's a philosophy and whatever you're doing is so much deeper than the mitzvah, so then the actual action loses value. And that's why, just to put it in perspective, in Spain, you have the, by the Spanish Inquisition. A lot of Jews end up converting to Christianity on the outside, and they were Muranos. So now the reason why that happened was because a lot of the Jewish people At the time, since they were, they had all this Jewish philosophy, so I'm always a Jew. I can never be disconnected. And they were very in tune with that. And therefore, they kind of felt actions don't really matter. But that's why they're able to do that. And, you know, there's a lot of very heroic stories. But at the end of the day, they say that one third of South Americans have Jewish blood. And now there's one third of South Americans aren't Jewish. So... The reason for that is because these people they they were maybe Jewish, their kids and grandkids weren't Jewish, or their their grant like eventually it's, you can't live a fake double life forever. So therefore, that was kind of a con to the whole idea of Jewish philosophy. So now, Jewish philosophy is split into two parts. So we said earlier there's the Hakira part, and there is Musar. So chakira will deal about with what God is. Um, it will chakira will is an idea that you take the idea of God. So God is abstract, but we need to understand Him, and God wants us to understand Him in the most, um, in the, the as much as we can, and therefore through. Chakira means to um, to interrogate. Through you ask all these questions, you could eventually get to a space, you could understand, this is where I believe, and from here on, this is what I know, and from here on is what I believe. What does that mean? It means that there's a mitzvah to believe in God, there's a mitzvah to know God. So, someone who believes someone, blind faith, you know, they say, I heard a good joke, not a joke, a good one-liner. Blind faith is a whole bunch of people following behind the blind person. Um when you someone has just believes in something that they're able to understand on their own. If I if you someone asks me what is 10 plus 10, and I tell them 20, they say, Okay, I trust you. They're an idiot. Why should he trust me? Just do the math. 20 is them like don't trust me. This is something that you can figure out on your own if you can't. So trusting God is not entail anything that we can figure out on our own. Trusting God starts only with the things that we cannot figure out on our own. So the Chakira part of Judaism is trying to do all the searching to figure out everything that can be done on our own. The Musar part of Judaism is telling a Jew, how are you supposed to act? So um, just a very simple example of this. In Judaism, Jewish law, if the you look at the food, if it's kosher, you could eat it. But now, if you look at Musar, I'll start telling you, you should only eat this amount. You should never eat just because you only should eat because you're hungry. And there's all these guidelines. So now, are you going against Jewish law if you're eating kosher food and you're stuffing your face? You have chopped liver, and you see ah, oh, you have chopped liver. You're eating it. You're stuffing your face, and you're stuffed. We you continue. No, you're not. You're you're good, you're, you're keeping Jewish law, but in ethics, is that the right thing to do? Not necessarily. And that's where all these books of ethics come in. So the first book of ethics, actually, will be Pirkei Avot. It's from the Mishnah Ethics of Our Fathers. That's the first book of ethics. Then you have a lot more throughout the different generations. So I want to go through a video going through all the major works Um. All the major risks.
2: Like spring water gushing with inspiring force, diverging into multiple rivers the further it travels, so do the Torah's wisdoms and insights branch into multiple streams of thought the further the Jews travel with it on their journey through time. Let's take a look at two of those streams whose courses run parallel and often intersect. Musr, a Hebrew term for restraint or discipline, has been used since biblical times to refer to ethics, character cultivation, and spiritual self-improvement. Musr is the field of Torah psychology. Chakira, a Hebrew term for investigation, is used for the intellectual probing of Judaism's ideology and theology. Chakira is the field of Torah philosophy. These twin wisdoms are woven throughout the narratives and teachings of the Tanakh. King Solomon drew extensively from their waters to compose the biblical book Mishlei, Proverbs, which provides observations on human nature and guidance for an intellectual, moral, and righteous life. He also produced Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, on the meaning of life and human pursuits and the role of religion. Another biblical book, Eov, the Book of Job, investigates human suffering, the existence of evil, and the limitations of theology. Insights into Torah psychology and philosophy filter into the discussions of the Talmud. In fact, the Mishnah devotes much of the tractate obos to ethical conduct. But the divergence into independent fields of Torah exploration with scholarly publications exclusive to these two genres occurred in the 10th century. At that time, The primary centers of Jewish life and scholarship were located in Arabic-speaking countries, where academia had flourished for centuries. For that reason, the initial works of Jewish ethics and philosophy were written in Judeo-Arabic. But in the 13th century, with the decline of Arabic civilization and the academic shift to Europe, Hebrew again became the primary language in which Jewish books were composed. Rabbi Sadia Gaon was a prominent rabbi and author who lived in Egypt, the land of Israel, and Babylon. His book, Beliefs and Opinions, is the earliest known organized presentation of Torah philosophy and theology. Rabbi Shlomo Ibn Gabirol of Spain wrote on philosophy, ethics, Kabbalah, and Hebrew literature. His font of life is a classic in Jewish and Islamic ethical philosophy. Rabbi Bachya Ibn Pakuda of Spain penned the first systematic work of Jewish ethical philosophy that later inherited the title of its Hebrew translation Chavot Halavovot, Duties of the Hearts. Its ten gates explore unity of God, providence, worship, trust, sincerity, humility, repentance, self-examination, asceticism, and love. Rabbi Yehuda Halevi of Spain, one of Jewish history's greatest poets, and liturgists crafted Kuzari, one of Judaism's premier theological presentations couched as a dialogue between an 8th century rabbi and a Khazar king who converted to Judaism. Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, the universally acclaimed Maimonides, produced Guide for the Perplexed while living in Egypt. The work leans on Aristotelian and Classical Arabic philosophy to explain Judaism's fundamental principles. Rabbi Yehuda HaChassid of Germany, a founder of the Hasidei Ashkenaz ascetic movement, wrote the ethical Sefer Chassidim, Book of the Pious. A brilliant but anonymous rabbinic author living in Barcelona produced Chinuch, Book of Education, recording reasons for each of the 613 Biblical commandments with the ethical lessons they convey. Rabbi Yona Garondi of Spain authored several moralistic works including the famous Sha'are Tshuva, Gates of Repentance. Rabbi Levi van Gershon, known as Ralbag, or Gersonides, was a French philosopher, mathematician, astronomer, scientist, and inventor. He wrote a philosophical treatise, Milchamot Hashem, God's Battles, and a Bible commentary that drew philosophical, ethical, and legal conclusions from the narrative. Derashot Haran, the Discourses of Rabbi Nissim Garondi of Catalonia explores elemental ideas in Jewish philosophy such as creation, free choice, prophecy, chosenness, nature and miracles, mitzvot, and Torah learning. An anonymous author published Orchot Tzadikim, Ways of the Righteous, a collection of ethical teachings that became a classic of the Musr Library. Rabbi Chiste Kreskas of Sargosa wrote Or Hashem, God's Light, to defend classical Jewish theology in the face of the Aristotelian philosophy favored by medieval Jewish scholars. Rabbi Yosef Albo of Spain penned a classic of Torah philosophy, Ikarim, Fundamentals, which emphasizes three pillars of Jewish belief, God's existence, the Torah's divine origin, and reward and punishment. Rabbi Eliyahu Davidas of Tzfat, a disciple of Master Kabbalist Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, wrote a moral, mystical work named Reshit Chachma, Genesis of Wisdom. Rabbi Yehud Loewi, known as Maharal of Prague, was one of the greatest sages of his era. Several schools of Torah philosophy are based on or derived from his many works. Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, or Ramchal, of Italy and Holland, authored many books on Kabbalah, philosophy, ethics, poetry, including an ethical classic, M'silat Yesharim, Path of the Upright. Rabbi Chaim of Volozhin, a protege of the Vilna Gaon and founder of the Volozhin Yeshiva that produced several leading Torah scholars of the next century and a half, composed the philosophical and Kabbalistic Nefesh HaChaim, Soul of Life. Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch lived in Germany and founded the Torah Derech Eretz Approach to Judaism, advocating a symbiosis of Torah learning with secular sciences and engagement with the modern world. He wrote philosophical and psychological insights on the biblical narratives, authored Horeb, a philosophical exploration of the mitzvot, and 19 letters on Judaism, a work of philosophical defenses of the Jewish faith. Rabbi Yisrael Lipkin of Lithuania, known as Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, founded the modern Musser movement that invited fresh emphasis on ethical behavior, character refinement, and self-improvement in the European bastions of classical Torah study. Various schools emerged within this movement, including the Kelm School founded by Rabbi Simcha Ziv, which emphasized orderliness, thoughtfulness, and dedication, the Slobodka School of Rabbi Natan Svifinkel, Finkel, focusing on the human striving for perfection. And the Novardic School of Rabbi Yosef Yosel Horowitz, which emphasized trust in God, humility, and self-effacement. The movement became a lasting cultural and educational phenomenon, drawing on earlier ethical classics while offering original contributions to the Library of Jewish Ethics. Many of its prominent rabbis emphasized specific methodologies. For example, its founder Rabbi Salanter focused on identifying personal strengths and weaknesses and confronting a weakness head-on. Rabbi Ziv emphasized thinking before acting. Rabbi Yosef Leib Bloch taught Jewish philosophy-based ethics. Rabbi Elchanan Wasserman focused on integrity of thought and belief. Rabbi Yeruchim Levavetz focused on the uniqueness of each individual. Rabbi Eliyahu Eliezer Dessler's ethical and philosophical insights were colored by Kabbalistic and Hasidic teachings. His teachings are preserved in the Mussar classic, Mikhtov Me'Eliyahu, Letter from Eliyahu. Rabbi Shlomo Wolba focused on education and individual growth. Rabbi Yisrael Meir Kagan of Radin, Belarus, a foremost Halachist, ethicist, and mentor of 19th and 20th century Eastern European Jewry, is better known by the title of his first publication, Chavetz Chaim, Desires Light, a Digest of Laws Relating to Ethical Speech. Rabbi Avraham Yitzchak Cook, modern Israel's first Ashkenazic chief rabbi, crafted works on Jewish thought and law with a distinctive philosophical, mystical and poetic style. They are the ideological underpinnings for religious Zionism. Rabbi Joseph Beresolovejik of, of Boston was a Talmudist, a philosopher, and a seminal figure of modern Orthodox Judaism. He led the rabbinical seminary at New York's Yeshiva University, and his philosophy was preserved in numerous articles and talks, including two landmark essays, The Lonely Man of Faith and Halachic Man. These are some of the primary works of Musser and Chakira, Composed throughout the centuries, the river of Torah flows on as sages and authors continue to expound new ideas, insights, and lessons from the Torah's timeless teachings.
0: All right, do we have any questions?
1: It work if we see
0: it I'll try to put the video on the, on the email. Okay. I'll have the video in the email. Any questions? Any other questions? Any questions on Zoom?
2: We're not going to
1: go through summaries of all those books. No.
0: All right. So let us... Okay, let us begin with uh... let us begin with we're going to take three topics in in Judaism um, in Chakira and we're going to try to connect them all with each other. So let's begin. We're gonna have start with the three, or I don't know if we'll finish, but we'll definitely start. Um creation, trust trusting God, which we are learning about. So we're gonna and anyone who was here in the classes, um in the classes before we started this JLI course, we're gonna get back into some of those ideas we spoke about. And number three, anger. And then they all connect, of course, and that's what we're gonna to try to do. So let us begin. So let's go open everyone open um to text number four. You have text number four. We have a one of the most one of the most famous verses of the Torah. It goes as follows. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So great, pretty simple and straightforward. Um Pretty simple and straightforward verse. So the thing is, why does the Torah begin with such a verse? So you know who the first person asks this question? It'll be Rashi. If we look in text five, it says as follows The Torah, Rashi says, The Torah ought to have begun with the verse, this month shall be to you, which is the first mitzvah commanded to the Jewish to the people of Israel. Why then does it begin with in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? So Rashi, he asks the question, right? He asks, why does the Torah begin with, with this verse? So now it seems like a pretty stupid question. What do you mean? The Torah starts from the beginning of creation. And therefore, because the Torah starts from the beginning of creation, we have to, we're gonna reckon with that and you know, start from the beginning. But the truth is, what is the point of Torah? Torah has history in it. But Torah is not a history book. So therefore, if we want to say that, that that that's not a good reason, just to say it's the beginning of history. And that's why Rashi, which even Rashi, he is the Pshat, Rabbi of Torah. He explains the Torah on the simplest level. He understands that the simplest person to, understand, to learn Torah, because the first thing you know before you learn Torah, you make a blessing. We bless Hashem for giving us the Torah, for choosing us giving us the Torah. So now that He chose us, He gave us the Torah, we understand the Torah is God's Torah, and it doesn't need to be in a chronological order or anything. The Torah should have started from the first mitzvah. What's the first mitzvah? the first mitzvah is something that is associated with today, the Rosh Chodesh, the mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh. Today was Rosh Chodesh, the first of Adar, the month of Adar. So the first mitzvah was Rosh Chodesh. The so Rashi says, why does the Torah start within the beginning? God created the heaven and the earth. We know God created the world. Ron, do you know God created the world? Pardon me? Do you do you know that God created the world? Yes. Do you need God to tell you he created the world in order to know that?
1: I think you'd say that.
0: Well, I, look, I think if I think it's a catch-22. If I believe God created the world, I don't need him to tell me. And if he tells me and I didn't believe in it, it wouldn't help. If I didn't believe in God, God told me he created the world. It wouldn't help that he told me. I still wouldn't believe in him.
1: I don't know what it told me.
0: It's um I'm saying if you if I don't believe in the Torah, I'm not obviously if you have divine revelation, I'm it's a different uh different discussion. If the uh, God did not write in the Torah that He created the heaven and the Earth, I would still know that God created the heaven and the earth because I believe in God. And if I would not believe in God, the fact that God writes it in Torah, there are plenty of people in the world right now which do not believe that the God created the world. And yeah. they even though God wrote it the Torah, and they could even be scholars of the Torah, but they don't believe in that. So it doesn't help. So why does God have to tell us that he created why does God have to tell us that he created the world?
1: Well, would you rather he said I didn't create the world?
0: He shouldn't say He doesn't need to do say anything. The Torah should start with the first mitzvah. You the first mitzvah. No, I'm talking rhetorically. Think about it. I
1: mean, no, it's a concept. that what talking about. Whether it's the first line of Torah or somewhere else. I'm I'm
0: saying saying it doesn't need... I'm saying the Torah is the... The
1: belief that God created the world is a fundamental part of Judaism.
0: Correct. It doesn't need... I'm saying the Torah doesn't need to start off with that. The Torah is the book of mitzvahs, all the 13 mitzvahs of the Torah. There's no mitzvah. uh, There's no mitzvah God created the heaven and earth. That's not a mitzvah. Well, there
1: are no mitzvahs until the second book.
0: Exactly. So the Rashi asks, why don't we start from the second book? That's Rashi's question. And Rashi... Because people
1: must be curious as hell Thousands of years. How did this all start? So, some smart group of Jews got together and transcribed what is now the Genesis and attributed to God. What's going on there?
0: No. So the, the answer, Rashi says. The answer, Rashi says, why does the Torah start with him getting God created on the earth? It's not. This is. We're not going to get into. We're not supposed to get into this in the class. Just a bit on off topic. This is a parenthesis. That the reason why God created. The, it's the Torah starts off like that is for us to know that since God created the world, the world's really God's. So therefore, the land of Israel, God gave it to the Canaanites, and then God took it away from them and gave it to us. So they shouldn't say we're on stolen land. Which is very interesting because, in the end, that now, now that's in the UN, everyone's screaming that we're on stolen land. So actually, the reason why Torah starts off, according to Rashi, is to refute that claim. But let's get out of that idea. So now... The question. So is,
1: why doesn't the general Genesis right
0: So, so here. So let's look at the text. Let's go to text. Is there an to yes. That question
1: you ask.
0: Yes. Let's go to text number six. Nachmanides answers the question, and Nachmanides says as follows: This is a midrashic teaching that Rashi cites in his commentary, but we can question this indeed. There is a great need to begin the Torah within the beginning God created, as this is the very root of our faith. One who does not believe this and thinks that the world always existed (laughs) denies the very basis of Judaism and has no Torah at all. So... um, That was text number six
1: page
0: one nine six so the 196. the the my just to unpack what what the Ramban is saying he's saying as follows so at the, um he is saying that you it's the most important thing to know God created the world so why is it the most important thing so until like I don't know when it started but it used to be that the scientists and philosophy science and philosophy. And psychology, by the way, we're all the same thing. Therefore, like, for instance, a there's no such thing as a. um, um, Everything is based in philosophy. So if because the whole point of science is to try to understand beyond what we see. So now we have capabilities for concrete science. But at the time, it's a hypothesis, so they relied on philosophy for a lot of that. So the greatest philosopher of the time, and for many generations later, was Aristotle. Aristotle's main idea is was that God didn't create the world; the world always existed, and God is the mover and shaker of the world. God's the Mahar, You know what a Macher is?
1: He accepted the multiplicity okay. of Greek gods. Yeah. When well, you're, you're talking about God and the singular. No, but the, Aristotle was, would never have done that.
0: No, I mean, but they all believe that there's one God that is presides all over, over all the gods.
1: The Greeks didn't believe that. They well, believe there's they one. Had, I guess they thought um, Zeus was the chief yeah. among cadre um, and Romans and Eagles.
0: So therefore, you have a multitude of whatever I'm saying. So you have a world which is ran by God. So now a Jew, he translates this. So the Jew that is uh, the Jew that learning Aristotle, he translates this a, as follows. He says, great. So there is. Whoops. What just happened? He translates as follows. He says that, OK, there's. um, There's a world that always existed. There's God that always exists. And therefore. We need to believe, we need a um therefore great. So the problem with that is this idea is that if that is the case, then it diminishes God's power. Because if creation, if there is never creation in the world, the world always was, and God is just the one that operates within the world, that would make
1: that's Aristotle speaking. That's
0: Aristotle, yeah.
1: And Zeus did not create the world. No. So he's saying sex did matter.
0: Yeah. So that would make God. A. Would make God nature. That make God be nature. And not that God controls nature. Because. If God didn't create the world he does cannot god cannot control how the world operates and also another byproduct that comes out of this is if everything's nature then everything is preordained there's no everything is is just running its course so we're just part of this big story that would we'll take away from our free choice so number one, I guess I was trying to they're bring out miracles. Number two in the free choice. Number three, there'd be no if according to Aristotle, whatever's supposed to happen is going to happen. So if someone what happens when a Jew, a Jew gets um gets a diagnosis of a big sickness, he prays to God. According to Aristotle, that's useless. God can't help you. God's making sure the world's running smoothly, but part of the plan is people get cancer and die. there's no miracles, there's nothing to change, but a Jew actually believes that through our prayer, we are able to change what is going to happen, what is supposed to happen, and therefore, this is why it's so fundamental to believe that God created the world. Let's see this all in text number seven. This is from Rabbi Sadia Gaon, right in the beginning of his book. He says, God tells us In the Torah, that all things were created from nothing, created by him from a prior state of non-existence, as it is written, in the beginning God created. It also says, I am God who makes everything. This truth was corroborated for us with signs and miracles, and therefore we accepted it. I then contemplated this truth asking can this be verified by logic as it is verified by prophecy I found that it is from a number of angles the first proof is the fitness of the universe because we know that the heavens and earth are are of a limited size their potential must be also must also be limited as a finite object cannot possess an infinite potential Because the energy that sustains their existence is finite, they must have a beginning and an end. The second proof is the particularization and complexity of the universe. I observe how every entity is comprised of interconnected parts and complex components, uh, revealing to me the imprint of their maker and creator. I found that this too is stated in the verse When I see your heavens, the way, the work, see your heavens, the work of your fingers, moon and stars, which you arrayed. Which is very interesting. You know, what's his point? His point is, I skipped a bit. This is supposed to be, I was supposed to read this earlier. Um, So his point being is that, um, his point is his point being, that you know, like now every single person in the world, no one believes in Aristotle's idea anymore. That's complete. Everyone knows that that's, that's not true. Not everyone believes God created the world. There's a everyone believes there's a beginning. Because it cannot be otherwise. Either Big Bang theory, or whatever. So it's very interesting. He comes a thousand years before anyone ever thought of the Big Bang theory, and he's saying that you just look at the world. It doesn't make any sense otherwise. There's too many things going on that it cannot it cannot be that it just it was. Must be that it was created. So, anyhow, we finish over here. This is stage one about bitachon. Sorry, not about bitachon, about creation. That's very important to know that God created the world because that the Torah has to start because it's very important for us. That's the basis of all Judaism. Just want to say something interesting before we continue. And as follows that, you know, believing in God is not a mitzvah. There's no mitzvah to believe in God. So now you look at me. What do you mean there's no mitzvah to believe in God? How can you say that? So the answer is like this. So is this, I was trying to get onto this earlier. I'm going to get more now. That the mitzvah, there, there's two types of mitzvahs. There are mitzvah, general mitzvahs, and practical mitzvahs. A general mitzvah is to believe in God, to... To believe in God is a general mitzvah, to to, um, love God could be a general mitzvah. I think in the the end, we, we believe it's one of the 613. But if you go through the Torah, there's a lot more than 613 mitzvahs. So some of them are general mitzvahs, are mitzvahs which they are, you could say almost that they're so important that they're not part of the 613 mitzvahs, they are a fundamental mitzvah. So believing in God is a fundamental mitzvah because again if you don't believe in but God
1: it's
0: not one of the, three, uh, 613 three. no um because if you believe in God you believe in God then if you if you believe in God then um if you don't believe in God, I mean that there's no Torah to believe in. There's no anything to believe in. So you cannot, you can't say one of the 613 mitzvahs is to believe in God. It's like a king making a law, the number, the rule number one, that you have to listen to the rest of my laws. Like, if you don't, if you want to rebel against a king, start the fight with him. You know, if you, the government, I actually think it's kind of funny, but I mean, we do have that here in America. They have, there's a, a law, they have to comply with the police. That's only that they could hit you with another punishment. If you don't comply, they can give you an extra two years in prison. But they, um, the point of it is, is that you, you can't have a religion. There's no Judaism without believing in God. So believing in God isn't a mitzvah that is part of Judaism, per se. Not Sorry, not part of Judaism, part of active Judaism. It's a general mitzvah. So therefore... Therefore, it is most important to believing... It's not that.
1: one of the 613, but it is an obligation of every Jew. Yeah. Where
0: does
1: that obligation come from? Not from the it comes
0: from God. It's not one of the 613. It's a fond- It's a fundamental mitzvah. There are normal mitzvahs and fundamental mitzvahs. The 613 are action mitzvahs. There's All these mitzvahs have actions. This is not a mitzvah that has any action. It's about, it's fundamental. So therefore, it's very important The Torah starts off with the beginning, G-d-k-d-m-the-Earth, because to bring out that point that this is the foundation of everything. So let's look at text number eight, which I think text number eight says it clearly, and this is what I thought text number seven was. This is from Maimonides, his guide for the perplexed. The belief in the pre-existing world is viewed by Aristotle in which everything that it must be, nothing changes its nature and nothing acts contrary to its custom. This view contradicts the basis of our faith, denies every miracle and negates all that the Torah strives for or warns against. Know that with the belief of a created world, all miracles are possible, the Torah is possible, and all challenges to these truths are answered for For should you ask, why did God communicate his prophecy with this one and not with the other? Why did he command these particular mitzvahs and prohibitions? What is the divine intent of these instructions? Why did God not inspire these actions and prohibitions in our nature if this is the behavior that he de- if this is the behavior that he de- desired? The answer is to all the questions is so so God desired and so his wisdom deemed. It in the same way that it was desired by God to create the world in this particular matter, but if we were to, but if we we were to believe that the world is the way it is because it could not be any other way, then these questions should would necessarily ar- arise. And they would could only be answered with weak, unsatisfactory replies. If God, if we know God created everything, every question has an answer, because the answer just boils back to God and you can't ask answer, you can't ask a question like God. You know, we have someone in our congregation, um, a shout out to Jim. He always says, if he had one answer question, he to uh if he has one question he could ask God, what would it be? And he says. <laughs> it'll be why and he says you know what god's gonna answer because um the truth is is that it's a that's like every question you know if you go back to god if god created everything then anything you're not you don't feel comfortable with he doesn't need to actually have a good response for it it just that's how it is
1: belief in a pre-existing world
0: one, just give me one second. Me, God
1: doesn't have anything to do with the pre-existing world.
0: Let me finish and I'll answer your question. Um, I don't get it. So, therefore, once we know God created the world, everything, there is kind of a purpose running everything. All right. Ron, ask your question.
1: Well, this paragraph, that we just read at the end of the statement, the belief in a pre-existing world was viewed by Aristotle. Yeah, if there were a pre-existing world, will that mean that God had nothing to do with it?
0: Uh, and pre-exist
1: God? There is
0: no pre-exist God yet. Yeah. It
1: pre-exist us and still not pre-exist God.
0: Yeah. No, that it, pre- it would mean that it pre-exists God. That God would would have been a a a creation of some sort, a spirit or something that was given the power to create. So
1: things. that was Aristotle's teaching that before. Before, that's at so roughly 3,300 years ago. Prior to that time was another world that God had nothing to do with. Kind of
0: yeah, if he, he thought that the I studied Aristotle, so, No, that. he thought that the world <laughs> that God the world predates God, not that God predates the world. There's no the world doesn't have a creator.
1: All right, so where okay, Is axiomatic. So it's something like thirteen hundred years before Aristotle, these crazy Hebrews came up with Judaism. But prior to that, prior to Judaism, there was just a world, no God involved at all.
0: That's, I mean, there was just a world, and but God was, I mean, according to Judaism, God was involved the whole time. That's number one. Number two, I mean, there's not, there was a very small amount of time. There was never a time which no one believed in god in the world there was adam that overlaps with noah which overlaps with abraham and then that's where we are today so ever since then yeah
1: i think i learned that aristotle did kind of believe in a a god that was before everything because he talked about an unmoved mover something had to be at the very beginning that moved everything so that's what i heard
0: honestly i never learned aristotle I do. Um, I
1: yeah,
0: and, um. I never learned Aristotle, so if you have questions on this, I'm I'm know this from the Rambam and different things. Another confession I'll make: these books of Musa and Chakira, my whole entire these ideas of Jewish philosophy, my whole entire exposure to them was through the lens of Hasidic teachings. I've never learned them on their own rights. Almost never. I shouldn't say never. There were times. I mean, I did, but usually I didn't so I'm really my exposure there are so the two there's Hakira which is that's what we're dealing with now looking into God then there's the Musar which is dealing with ethics with yourself so the Musar movement is really um it's not taught akhaban Yeshivas at all we stick with the Hasidic teachings um and the but there's a lot of yeshivas that do, Expand on those ideas. And then when it comes to the Chakira, it's not really taught in the yeshivas so much. All right, let us continue. So now let's speak a little bit about bitachon, trust in Hashem. So there is one of the big books that we spoke about is the Fogot Alevavot. So his, his, um, one of the top. One of the uh, one of his chapters, he speaks about bitachon, trust in God. So, part of a big part of trusting God would mean to make a. It means that you know. It's the idea that you know that.
1: Um. Oh yeah, this.
0: It's the fact that the, the idea of bittachon is that you feel secure with God's decision making, just like a little child when his kid is holding him, he feels secure. I I mean, this kid when his parents are holding him. Um. By the way, any of my misspeaking and stuff, I'm sorry. I've been getting over. I've been sick the past few days, so I still have a bit of brain fog. So. I should have apologized in advance, but now after the fact or middle of the fact, I'm apologizing. Um, so the kid feels like the security's pants are holding for holding him. We know God is constantly orchestrating everything, and therefore we know that we are always in good hands. So let's get right into this. Let's look into. Um, let's look into. Um, text number nine. So text number nine deals with someone which does not have bitachon. He calls himself the self-made billionaire. He's a self-made man. So text number nine says as follows, be aware, lest you eat and and be satiated and you'll build good houses and dwell therein and your herds and your flock will multiply. Your silver and gold will increase, and all that you have, and all that you have will increase. And your heart will grow haughty, and you will and you will forget your the Lord your God. And you will say in your heart, "My ability and my and my might of my hand have accumulated this wealth for me." Remember, Lord your God is the one who gives you the ability to make wealth. So the Torah right away tells us there's no such thing as a self-made billionaire. You're a God-made billionaire.
1: You
0: know Forbes has the the, the list of the youngest self-made billionaires. There's no such a thing. There's such a thing called a God-made billionaire. Um, just just um to just this whole idea of God-made. It just reminds me of a very interesting story. So there was a certain Chassid. Um, he's actually still alive, which he—he's one of the last heroes. There used to be a big thing in Russia when there's the Hasidic that there were these communities were very opposed to the Hasidic teachings. They would really, um, they would really make really hard the Hasidic Jews to make their lives really hard, and really sometimes hurt them physically. So there's a certain Khasid, which he came from one of these communities. And he get they, they really they almost killed him they almost beat him one another Jewish community unfortunately almost beats him to death so he has a whole correspondence back and forth with the Rebbe the Rebbe is very interested in how he's doing and everything so he wrote that he's not so worried he writes the Rebbe I'm not so worried because I know there's a saying in Hebrew osa, yasa whatever the brain doesn't do time does you know time's the biggest healer. And people like sometimes, and you said whenever they, if they don't get more open minded to accept me, I know through time they can forget about me, and then they'll be fine. So the Rebbe crosses out time and writes God. But there's no, there's no. Everything is God. You know, it's not time. You know, God invented time, so it's really God that makes human nature such a way. Just uh interesting story so any else so you have the self-made the self-made billionaire God tells you he you knows so this thing you're a God made billionaire so now I want to become a God made billionaire so you know what I'm gonna do I am going to sit on my couch I am gonna play video games and I I will I expect and I demand that good things happen to me and I become a self-made billionaire you know we call that person a fatalist he just doesn't care about anything. He believes in fate. You know, if I'm supposed to be, you know, and if I'm not supposed to be a billionaire, I still could play on my couch or play video games, and I won't be a billionaire because even if I'm not supposed to be a billionaire or not even a billionaire, if I'm not supposed to have money, even if I work my heart out, I'm not going to get any money. So now I'm like, it seems like God's telling us, you know, we're all doing, we're all doing the, the wrong thing. Randy, do you work? I play. You quit your job. Netta, you're you're going to school. Quit Quit school. You're retired. You believe in God. <laughs> so it seems like that. So so the Torah actually, um, the Torah actually, um, he, the Torah tells us this is not true. So look in text number ten. It says as follows because it says God will bless you I might think that a person can sit ideal idle so the Torah teaches us in all that you do so now there's like let's go straight to text 11 with an elaboration on this idea diligence and effort are useful and necessary in all human actions this also applies to to the events in which both the divine decree and human choice play a part, like the grain that is produced by the work of the farmer and the rain. Certainly, the work and efforts of the farmer are as necessary a, a necessary condition for the growth of the grain as the rain, as without them, the grain will not grow. For this reason, King Solomon praises diligence and says, the hands of the diligent make rich and condemns laziness in order to urge a person to make all the efforts in their power to obtain their objectives. The psalmist also writes, if God does not guard a city, the watchman's vigilance is in vain. This implies that when God does guard the city, the watchman does well to be vigilant. For divine help comes With human vigilance and effort. But not without it. We would therefore exert our efforts. In all teachings. As though they were completely dependent on our choice. And God will do do as he sees fit. So we see. There's kind of. um, Over here you have fatalism. They're, They're all both wrong. You need to have bitachon. The Bittachon is the main thing, which is somewhere in the middle. You have to make a vessel. So you have to rent, you have to continue working. I'm sorry, I got you excited for a minute. Yaakov, you're still retired. <laughs> um okay. I still work. I know. I'm just picking on you.
1: No, it's all right.
0: I'm still I still work. Um you have to work to make a vessel to keep up. But
1: to make a vessel. Have to fine,
0: okay. yeah, um, you have to plan to make a vessel. You have to, you have your vessel, but then you have to also know that it's just a vessel. So there's actually a beautiful analogy in the Shara Khon. He has a very beautiful analogy about this vessel, um, that you need to make. You know, you have to have your vessel. So there's actually just before you get to the vessel, I just want to say a very interesting story of the Bal Shem Tov. The Balshemtov said a story, the story about him that one time Valshemtov was going around collecting money. So he goes to the rich man's door, he knocks on the door, then he leaves. So the rich man chases after him. He says, Yes, he Valshemtov, like, I'm sure you knocked my door for money, then why do you leave? So the tells him, I knocked on the door, I need money. I knocked your door because that's my vessel. Once I did my part, I knocked on the door. All the conversation and stuff, but then all the results, that's in God's hands. So I did my vessel, and once I did my vessel, I was going to wait for you to come all the way down to your steps of your big mansion to open the door. I left. So for the Baal Shem Tov, that was a great fundraising pitch, and I'm sure the person gave him money. If I did that, I'll be looked at as an arrogant person. So obviously that's not a vessel for me to just knock on the door. I also have to talk. Um, but just that's like an extreme of just you have the vessel, and now the rest is in God's hands. And just one more story of the Baal Shem Tov, which is about the vessel. Before we continue, I just feel it's important to say these stories is that there's one time a man who was running and running and running up the market, down the market, buying, selling. So the Balshemtov stops him and says, Rabid, fellow Jew, holy brother, where are you running? He said, What do you mean, where am I running? Today's market, Danny, make a livelihood. So the Balshemtov looks at him and says, Who says your livelihood is ahead of you and it's running away from you? Maybe your livelihood is behind you and you're running too fast for it to catch up to you. You know, who says that's the vessel? I mean, maybe you should be walking and do everything slow and you'll actually make more money. It's an interesting story. So let's read about this vessel. Let's look into text 12. This is from, it says as follows. A person should trust in nothing save the ability of God. For all the means by which a person acquires their food, their possessions, their their health and the like, these are the only causation, these are are only are all only the causations by which God causes these things to reach us, to reach the person. The author of Chovah Talavavot, Duties of the Heart has an analogy for this this is like a water wheel that raises water from a well by means of a well that that are affixed to it if one of these vessels were missing there would be a lack of water supply this is how a person should think about the sources of their livelihood the only source of sustenance is god the unity that transcends everything. And from him. Extend all. Of the means and avenues. By which our needs are supplied to us. So let's say you have this water wheel. Right? It's, so now let's say someone wants. More waters. So they make bigger vessels. You know it's still not going to get more water. Because you just need more water on the bottom. You need at the end of the day. The vessel. You have to make your vessel. But it's all the water is all coming from God. It's a water supply. And if you're missing one, so you have the one over there. One second, let's do back the spinning. Key. So I think there's a missing vessel in there. Maybe not. So you have, if um, you have that the vessel is so you have the water wheel. So there's so much going on. You know, you need someone. You can't just. It's not all about the wheel.
1: There's a vessel. There's twelve of them. Mm-hmm.
0: it's um yeah. so you need all these components in order to make it work so you can't just it's not just about the barrels you have the barrels but no one's turning it <clears throat> the vessels that no one's turning it then you have no water also is
1: it the current that's pushing the um, yeah the current source of power right
0: um but if it's missing a vessel, all of a sudden this source of power is done. There's nothing pushing it up anymore. Um, so the same is true when it comes to our belief in God. When you make a vessel, but then the rest God does. God's just doing the, the current that's pushing to make sure we have a constant supply of water. And that's why we have to know this. And there's actually an extreme example of this in our days. Is I know someone. That there's a there's a shop in Israel, where in Jerusalem a falafel shop or something, that they got to science, how much money they need per day, to survive. So as soon as they make enough money, they shut down the shop and that's it. So there's well, some days they're open till six, and some days they're closed at twelve p.m. You know they got good business. They got a whole group of tourists came to buy falafel and chick check. They're done. They're closed.
1: But if people want to go there and they're hungry
0: it's not there they already got their vessel
1: And the triangle was started this whole
0: thing yeah
1: I don't see how that relates to the water
0: No it's about you need to have a vessel on one hand you have to do something you have to work but then you have, you have to do your own your own work you
1: can't make it isn't all self-reliance you cannot It not all fatalism.
0: It's both. It's, you are doing your part, and you, you gotta, trust that God is going to make sure you well, succeed. The
1: third part is the critical part. Yeah. Neither self-reliance nor fatalism will do it. Yeah. Alone or in combination, you got to have that third element in the whole. Yes. Yeah,
0: so now I want to read a bit of this. Sh- so
1: what the hell is the, the, the water vessel has? The water
0: vessel is twelve wheels
1: spinning It's not that. So don't man created it, No, this is not. It.
0: It's a. It's an analogy. The twelve wheels is not. That's just. It's so an analogy. It looks
1: like something man. It well, it's,
0: it's it's a. It's just an analogy that you have the vessel, which is your 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 own doing something, and then but you need const. Just the vessel is not enough.
1: Right. this
0: is life a water you. that you need you 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 the vessels all you're doing you part and then you rely on God to do the rest if there's no water then the vessels oh, the
1: water supply let's
0: say the water. water if the if the water dries up and you make bigger vessels you're not going to have water still right it's the uh, you have to do your part you can't be a fatalist you know if someone just has a wheel with no barrels then that's not going to work if you have no water, but you have the, if you have no water, but you have the buckets, it's also but not the gonna work. water comes from Yeah.
1: Through a stream or whatever. All right. What if there's a mechanism where that water pours in, but it goes this way and it forces the wheel to turn around the negative. Well, the current power the power of the where so you can do it with or without the current. In case the water wasn't moving that, that would force it. Around.
0: All right. So there's a third thing in S and the third a third rule in ethics. It's that anger. So let's look something. Let's look what the Maimani says that has to say about anger. Let's go look at text fourteen. It says as follows The correct path is the media is the median temperament of each of the character traits that a person has. The early changes, therefore.
1: Oops.
0: <laughs> yeah, I did. I kind of said it outside, but on much. page two, two twelve. The early sages instructed that a person who should evaluate their traits and direct them along a the middle path so as to achieve wholeness. For example, a person should not be overly stingy, nor squander their money, but should give charity according to their capacity and lend, and lend as is appropriate to one who is in need. A person should not be frivolous and jubilant, nor mournful and depressed but should be um, tranquilly happy at all times and with a friendly demeanor. The same applies to all of a person's traits. This path is the path of of the wise. So Imaudity says as follows. Imaudity says that you should never be an extreme. The only time you're supposed to be an extreme is if you're extreme the other way. If someone gives all their money away all the time, we'll tell them, okay, you be stingy. Learn how to hold back a bit. So this way you'll get back to the middle. The main thing always is, to be in that middle, never be an extremist, to be um the most mellow guy possible. But when does this defer? This defers when it comes to anger. Um, um so let's skip the text sixteen. He speaks about the Mandy says as follows: There are certain traits regarding which a person should not conduct themselves in the intermediate matter, but should distance themselves to the other extreme. For example, anger is an extremely negative trait from which a person should distance themselves in the extreme and and train themselves not to get angry, even over things that are worthy of anger. The early sages said... One who gets angry is as if they worshiped idols. They also said, one who gets angry, if they were a wise person, their wisdom departs from them, and if they are a prophet, their prophecy departs from them. And those who are prone to anger, their life is not life. The sage is therefore instructed to distance oneself from anger. This is the good path. Um so now the question is as follows. Why, why when someone, why when someone gets angry, is it akin to idol worship? Yeah. <laughs> so this sort of connects the three things: the bitachon mindset, which connects all these three ideas together. That when someone is, gets angry, it's because a result of lack of a, a lack of trust in Hashem. And why could he have lack of trust in Hashem? Because it, it means he doesn't think God is recreating the world every moment. Because you think God is not in control, every single Jew believes that God recreates the world every single moment, and therefore, everything that happens is for a reason, and therefore, I have nothing for me to get angry about. Because obviously, this is supposed to be. Um, there's an idea that you know, when something happens, you know, someone loses money, it's a kapara chaos. Obviously, supposed something were supposed to happen to me, so God punished me, my wallet instead of, instead of me. So it's a mindset to look at it, you know. Um it's not always easy, but that's what therefore when you get getting angry is akin to idol worship because it stems from a lack of belief in Hashem. <laughs> and so this is a a bit of delving into the Muser ideas, and now I'll take a question. Yeah.
1: Um is the anger more like the feeling of the anger, or is it the fact that you angry?
0: Um, is it, it's, so when you get angry, so the feeling of angry, if you don't express it, you know, you don't control your own emotions, but if you choose not to express it, it's because you realize God, um, that God controls everything and therefore there's no reason me can express my anger, but. I mean, the the ultimate is this is like the middle path. The ultimate is that you should try to make yourself; they you should never even feel anger. But the main thing it's talking about getting angry physically. Yes, Alan. I just wanted to say I think a good analogy to this taking the middle ground, not to get too angry, too upset,
1: or too happy. You know, kind of be in the middle for all your traits is the way a, a loose driver, a bobsled driver. Um, how they operate in the Olympics in this track, you always want to be in the
0: middle, you don't want to hit either side. You just want to take the middle path. That's kind of how i I see it. huh. yeah no The, the main thing, it's always the most efficient. It's to be the then so one who's in the middle path is always gonna be think he's the he's one that everyone could deal with, you know, because everyone could relate to it. Um, within everything in life. Yeah, and that's but when it comes to anger. There's a few other things also when it comes to lying. It says Midva shecheh tirchak, You should really um, stay far away from lying. Alright, so this was a synopsis, a little bit of learning the musar teachings and Chakira teachings. Um, next week, we will be our final week of our course. We will be discussing Kabbalah and Hasidis. That is more my cup of tea because in when I'm in yeshiva, me as a Yeshiva student, um, in the Chabadi Shiva, we learned Hasidic teachings. So that's what we'll be discussing next week. Um